Thank you very much for inviting me back here this morning. It's um, a privilege to be with you and to share from God's Word together. Last time I was here, I got asked to um, help the guys at the back with the slides that go up, and uh, I've tried my best to do it to help you guys, so hopefully it goes smoothly this morning. My topic this morning is standing against evil. And uh, in summary, uh, I can say this, it's not enough just to rely on the fact that we are saved as Christians. We need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in resisting temptation and in battling temptation and in staying above reproach. We can learn from the mistakes of the children of Israel in the, in the wilderness and that's exactly what Paul taught us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13, which is our text this morning. And these are warnings from Israel's history. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But... When you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. You see, in this passage, Paul, the apostle, was writing to encourage us. It's a little bit early for that, but that's all right. Um, he was writing to encourage us to take a determined stand against evil by taking us back to the children of Israel in the desert. And uh, he's asking us to learn from the mistakes that they made. Winston Churchill, uh, the reason, uh, by the way, I found out the reason why he looked so grumpy in that photo was because just before he took it, uh, the, the photographer took it, he took his cigar off him and uh, he wasn't very happy. So that's why he always looks grumpy when he's in a photograph. Anyway, Winston Churchill said, those who fail to learn from history are, are doomed to repeat it. And that's why God wrote these things down in the Bible for us to learn from these lessons that the children of Israel went through. Another unknown author once wrote, learning from your own mistakes is smart. Learning from other mis others' mistakes is wise, but not learning from either is foolish. 
There are many other similar quotes. I looked up on the net to find out where this quote originally came from, and there's so many of them from so many different people. But this is one from John C. Maxwell. He said, It is said that a wise person learns from the mistakes, uh, from their mistakes. A wiser one learns from others' mistakes, but the wisest person of all learns from, the, from others' successes. Former First Lady of the United States, Lady Eleanor, uh, not Lady, but Eleanor Roosevelt made a similar comment. She said, learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them all yourself. <laughs> and I reckon that's pretty good advice. It's much better to learn from the mistakes of others than to make them on your own and have to learn them the hard way. In this section of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul encourages us to look back and learn from the children of Israel. They were God's people, much like we are God's people today. They were looking forward to the coming of their Messiah, who would bring them salvation. We look back to Jesus' death on the cross for our salvation, and we've been celebrating that this morning as we took the Lord's Supper. Chapter 11 describes the church, that is us, as being grafted into the olive tree, which is Israel. Accordingly, the Israelites are our spiritual ancestors. And Paul writes about the time in the desert uh, when they uh, had been delivered from Egypt, 100 years of slavery. For generations, these people had lived in slavery. And now God himself freed them. And he went before them in the form of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And God led them miraculously by parting the waters of the Red Sea so that they could cross it on dry ground. He defeated the strongest army in the then known world. In the desert, he gave them food in the form of manna from heaven. He brought forth water from the rock to satisfy their thirst. He revealed himself to them on the mountain and he gave them the Ten Commandments and the law. He gave them victory over their enemies. They had a revelation of God that, like no one had ever seen before. God was revealing himself to them as a personal God who wanted to be with his people in a very special and unique way. In verse 4, Paul tells us, or calls him, the incarnate Christ, the one through whom Moses worked to meet their every need. Surely, if anything, these people should have been on a real spiritual high. I mean, just think about the things that they had seen. Can you imagine what it would have been like to see the ten plagues that swept through Egypt and how it culminated with the families on that last tenth plague where the ch children of Israel who had put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel, their firstborns were saved, but the children of the Egyptians, the oldest, was, was killed that night. Can you understand what it must have been like in Egypt that night? And the children of Israel watched that. And then as they were given permission to leave Egypt, the, God moved the Egyptians to compensate them for 400 years of hard work. They gave them silver and gold and other valuables freely as they left. And what about the crossing of the Red Sea and the defeat of Pharaoh's army? These were the very things that they had personally witnessed as they were released from slavery. These people had no memory of freedom, and yet now they had it. They could touch it 
They could taste it. They could feel it up close and personal. And it is theirs. It was theirs to possess and experience for the first time in living memory. Here we have an entire nation on the move, led by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he goes before them, and he's leading them on to the promised land. It seems inexplicable to me that because of their lack of faith, only two out of the original millions of adults who left Egypt made it into the promised land. Only two. Joshua and Caleb. Now on foot, an army in Moses' time could travel between 30 and 40 kilometres per day. Their goal was the land of Canaan, and yet Moses didn't take the shortest route. That route is about 400 kilometres long, and I haven't got a pointer to point to it, but you can see up the top it says the way of the Philistines, and it goes along the coast. That was the shortest route from Egypt to the land of Palestine or um, Canaan. 400 k's. That would have taken them with no interruptions or no uh, interference from the Philistines, a journey of around two weeks. It might have been a little bit longer for, a, for the children of Israel because they had children with them, they had animals and livestock to take with them, uh, and they were a bunch of civilians. They weren't an army who was trained to march. And so if they had followed that route, they would have gone straight through the land of the Philistines, which is places like Ashdod and Gaza up there on the coastline. That was enemy territory, and it stayed as enemy territory, basically the whole history of Israel. Uh, and nor did he head across the vast centre. So if you take that first red line and go across, um, it says Mount Karkom, uh, across that way. He could have taken that shortcut and gone across there, but no, what he did was he started from Egypt and he went down the coastline of the Red Sea, um, and that's the Gulf of Suez, and came around down to Migdol at the bottom and then up to Eltham, and um, Etham, I should say, and that's where they crossed the Red Sea. Now, that Gulf of Aquabar is still part of the Red Sea, and that's where they went, and they were heading back into um, the land of Horeb, uh, which is where um, Moses had fled when he left Egypt in the first place. When they were down at the bottom there, they were trying to go back up the other side of the, um, of the Gulf of Aquaba, but their way was blocked by the mountains. You see, the mountains came right down to the sea, and so they couldn't go any further north, and the Egyptians were coming around from behind them to the south, and for them to go, and that's when they first started crying out against Moses. What have you done bringing us out here to be killed? And so... Um, that's when God performed the miracle of the Red Sea. The land of Midian is over on this, this side in what is modern-day Arabia. And uh, that was where Moses had spent those 40 years. And that's where God said to Moses in Exodus 3 verse 5, Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. God was taking Moses and the children of Israel back to the holy mountain, that is Mount Sinai. And this was a very long detour that would have taken something like three months to travel from uh, Egypt to Mount Sinai in modern-day Saudi Arabia, a journey of about 2,700 kilometres on foot. Can you imagine it? 
It would have been an arduous journey. In Exodus 19 and verse 1 it says, On the first day of the third day, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert in Sinai, of Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. And from Mount Sinai to the border of Canaan was about 11 days' journey. Deuteronomy chapter 1 says in verse 2, It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir road. Anyway, I'm getting a bit sidetracked here. After crossing the Red Sea, the first camp was at Mar. Moreover, made bitter water sweet. And after leaving Elam, the people murmured against God, and God sent them quail. At Rephidim, water was again an issue. Then the attacking Amalekites came in, and they were vanquished. And Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, urged them to get help from capable men. And that we read about all those in Exodus chapter 15, verses 8, uh, chapter 15 through chapter 18. After several months, they left and they finally reached Kadesh Barnea, where they could see the promised land of Israel. And before entering the land, you'll remember the story God, Moses sent out 12 spies to survey the land and prepare an invasion plan. Of the 12 spies who went out, Ten brought back a bad report and convinced the children of Israel that they couldn't enter. As a result, their fear led to disobedience at Kadesh Barnea, and so God stretched a two-week journey into 40 years as they wandered about aimlessly in the desert. Verse 5 sums, up, sums it up well. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. What a terrible thing to have happened to these people. They'd seen all these wonderful things that God had done and yet they weren't convinced that God could take them into the promised land because, you know, there were giants in the land. There were huge walled cities that they couldn't take down. They were afraid and the bad report that came back to them convinced them that they couldn't take it. And yet God was on their side. How often do we get into situations like that ourselves and we think, oh, this is impossible. Things are possible. Paul tells us in verse 6 that these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things like they did. Remember the quote we had? Learning from your own mistakes is smart. Learning from others' mistakes is wise, but not learning from either is foolishness. Paul is telling us that we need to learn from their mistakes so that we don't make them ourselves. To not learn these lessons is foolishness. Being saved does not give us a license to sin. Just because you're saved, just because you belong to God, it doesn't mean you can just go about and do what you want and live as you please. In Romans 6 deals with this. In verse 1 to 4 it says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin, so how can we live in it any longer? Well, don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus in order that we too may live a new life? If you have been saved, you belong to God. 
1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20 says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. You see, he paid us to save you. So now we need to live for him and do those things that please him. Remember the children of Israel. There are consequences for disobedience. Paul highlights four major areas where the Israelites turned away from God. The first was idolatry. The second was sexual immorality. The third, they grew impatient with and questioned God in verse 9, and they were grumblers, verse 10. First one that we're going to look at is idolatry. He talks of how the Israelites were barely out of Egypt when they fell back into idol worship. Well, God, while Moses was up on Mount Sinai with God and God was writing the Ten Commandments in rock, in stone, Aaron was making a golden calf for the people to worship. At first glance, you might think, well, this doesn't relate to me. I mean, I don't worship idols. I know that um, bits of timber or bits of gold um, are not God. They can't help me. They can't answer my prayers. Well, let's just stop and test this for a moment. You might say, I'm not involved in idolatry. I don't worship false gods. I haven't broken the first or the second commandment. Well, okay, let's have a look at what the Bible calls idolatry. The Bible defines idolatry for us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, where we are told to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Ring a bell? All of those things are idolatry, and in particular, greed. Did you know the fundamental, the fundamental basis of idolatry is greed? The whole of our materialistic society feeds on greed. You see, they would worship these idols in order to get what they wanted. They would sacrifice to them in order to get what they needed. They wanted their crops to succeed. They wanted their children to be happy and healthy. They wanted all of these things, and so they were doing all that they could to satisfy the needs of their idol gods. I agree. We don't bow down today to idols of wood, stone, or gold, but we are fed a daily diet of, to be happy, you need the latest model of this or that. It may be a car, it could be a boat, maybe a flash house, the biggest TV in town. I saw at the weekend one that I thought was quite appealing. It's 132 inches. <laughs> Can you imagine that on the wall? I mean, it would fill up this whole floor. <laughs> and that's for your home theatre. only costs $11,000, but... This is what the world's feeding on. They're saying, you want the best, the latest, and the biggest. And the, you, you can pay some money and you'll have it. It may be having labels on your clothing. I don't know what it is that you lust after. But all of these things, we are fed this lie through the media all the time, in advertisements, through peer pressure and the sense of needing to belong. To be happy, you need these things. And the kids at school find it. You know, you've got to have the latest cell phone, you've got to have this and that and the latest games and all the rest of it. And if you get these things, you'll be happy. 
for a little while. Now, I'll admit, I'm as guilty as anyone here of being greedy. I'm a collector, and I have several collections. You just ask my wife, and she has a real battle with me on this one, and she's winning. But anyway, um, she will tell you I'm almost compulsive in collecting things, whether it be bone china, whether it be books or magazines, model aircraft or teddy bears, CDs or DVDs, whatever it is, <laughs> I've got lots of collections. And I tend to get carried away with things, and if it wasn't for my wife, I don't know if I would have stopped. You see, greed takes all sorts of forms. We find other things that are more important to us than God. It might be food, it might be status or work accomplishments, or even our health. And God is not pleased. We take good things and we sometimes make them into our gods. When, we become, when they become a priority over God, they become an idol. Now, I don't know whether you know it or not, but I own a classic car. And uh, boy, it costs a lot of money to run one of those things. And um, a few Sundays ago, there was a, um, a classic and vintage car rally here in Wanganui, and I wanted to go and take my car along for a run. So I've just finished restoring it. The trouble is, it started at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. So I had to decide between the classic car rally or going to worship the Lord. What comes first in your life? Is it the things that you have, or is it the Lord? I went to church that morning, so rest assured on that one. The second thing on Paul's list is sexual immorality in verse 8. In verse 8, he refers to a wild orgy that they had to celebrate their newfound freedom in Exodus 32. That day, 23,000 people died, 3,000 from execution and another 20,000 from a plague, because God was so angry with them and needed to show them how seriously he took sin. I'm guessing that you haven't participated in a wild orgy, but it could be that you have fallen under the influence of our highly sexualized society today. In our homes, we have greater access to pornography than any other time in history. With the click of a button uh, on our computers, we can see the vilest degradation imaginable. I don't know about you or anyone in your family, but I have seen marriages broken up and families split apart because of this problem. As parents, when our children were young, we took steps in our home to make sure that there were ground rules in place for the use of our computers. And I had to follow those rules too. And I still have to. Just because I'm mature doesn't mean that I couldn't fall in this area again. Could I suggest to you that you add some rules like this to your family, if you've got young people and teenagers. Computers can only be used in the public areas of your home where anyone can look and see what you are watching. That you have no screens in your bedrooms. That you be accountable to someone else regarding what you see on screen. There are applications that you can use that can be used to alert someone else if you are visiting an inappropriate site. Now, I know that in Jester Street Bible Church, we have some young fellows that have had some problems in this area. And so we have set up with them a program on their computer so that one of the elders or one of the, somebody else in the church that they trust knows what they are doing and what they've been watching and then can hold them to account. Allow someone else, and in my case, it's my wife, 
to have free access to your computer so that they can see your browsing history. Keep away from unsavoury sites no matter how alluring and tempting they may be. Use the off switch on your computer, I mean on your TV, if, um, if you um, see some inappropriate, inappropriate material, just turn it off or switch the channel. You don't need to sit there and watch it. Be aware of the subtle ways that the world's media is brainwashing you in, or us into accepting what was once considered s sinful as normal. Evolution teaching permeates so much of today's thinking and teaching in schools, universities and uh, nature documentaries that deny God as creator and leaves people without hope and purpose in this world. I remember when Elizabeth, um, who incidentally just had a baby this week, so I'm a grandfather again, I've got another grandson, so they've got a boy and a girl now. But anyway, um, no, that's another aside. Um, she was at home one night, and we were talking about, you know, I might get the word wrong here, but vestial um, uh, organs in the body, and we were talking about the, the coccyx, the tailbone. You know, it's in evolution, we must have once had a tail, but I've never seen a tail on one of those diagrams that they have of the things progressing from an ape through to a, a, a human being. But um, we were talking about these things, and the next day, the very next day at school, the teacher was talking about vestigial organs and was using the coccyx as an example of um, something that's unnecessary in the body. And Elizabeth stuck up her hand, and she's only a little bit, but she stuck up her hand and said, excuse me, sir, um, did you know that the coccyx has a lot of important um, muscles attached to it? And if you didn't have the coccyx, you wouldn't be able to go to the toilet, for example. Oh, the teacher had no idea about it. But you see, she had been shown something that she could counter the arguments of these uh, people at school. And after that, she had a lot of the kids at the school come and talk to her about evolution and creation and all the rest of it. So, you know, use these examples to teach your children so that they have uh, a, a, an answer ready that they can share with their friends and loved ones. And in particular, that they can challenge the worldview that is around us. Now, living together as man and wife before one is married is now the norm. There was a, um, my, my son, his sister-in-law and her fiancé wanted to get married, but they, they were living in Germany and they wanted to come back to New Zealand to get married. But he wasn't allowed to come back to New Zealand because they weren't living together. You see how subtle it is? You had to prove that you were in a relationship that included a sexual relationship before you could come back to New Zealand. Just the other day, there was another example in the paper that I read of a similar thing happened. This Christian couple, they wanted to come back to New Zealand because that's where she wanted to get married. And they wouldn't let her fiancé come back to New Zealand because they weren't living together. And uh, so they had to get married in a civil office over in the country where they were staying, came back to New Zealand and then had a, a, a church wedding here. Isn't it terrible? Living together as man and wife was once considered a sin. When I was young, the very idea that a New Zealand Prime Minister would be an unmarried mother would have been so shock too shocking to consider. And yet that's what we have this very day. It's considered normal. We're normalising so much. We are being conditioned into thinking that this sort of behaviour is normal. 
and you just look at your TV and watch the programs that are on there. Just about everyone has a homosexual relationship of some sort that is being put out there as being normal. I'll leave that there. The third mistake that they made was to grow impatient with and question God. Verse 9 refers back to a story in Numbers 21 when the people questioned the goodness and the plan of the one leading them through the wilderness. Those in verse 4, as they travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. Numbers 21 verse 6 tells us the resulting snake bites that killed many in the judgment. There were many that died as a result. How often have we questioned God's goodness and God's plan in our lives? We need to trust God even when we don't understand what he's up to. When things go wrong in our lives and things don't work out the way that we planned, it's very easy to become impatient and to question God. A lot of people looked at us when our house was burnt down and they thought, you know, how do you stand up to a test like that? Well, we lost everything. We, all we had was the clothes that we were wearing that Sunday. Everything else was basically gone. We just had to trust God and God took us through it all. When you're going through times of sickness and testing, God is with you. And I remember my daughter's favourite poem is that one about um, uh, questioning the Lord when... Uh, she saw the footsteps in the sand and then she noticed that during life when things got tough the foot, one set of footsteps disappeared and at the end of the poem it says my dear when those footsteps disappeared that's when I carried you through the troubled times there's an old hymn that we used to sing when we were young the words of the chorus were ask the saviour to help you, comfort, strengthen and keep you. He is willing to aid you. He will carry you through. Now if these first three that we looked at don't relate to you, how about trying the fourth for size? Paul talks in verse 10 of their grumbling and he says, do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Uh oh. That one's got to get us for sure. Do you ever grumble? Well, the Israelites sure did. They grumbled so much that Moses lost his temper with them. The incident refers to, referred to is found in Numbers chapter 16 when the angel of death came in and wiped out to wipe out the grumblers. You see, the problem with grumbling is it indicates a lack of faith in God and a lack of thankfulness for what he's done. I had a friend, and he's still a friend, that I worked with, and it didn't seem to matter what was going on. There was always something wrong and it was always someone else's fault. He was always grumbling. And so he thought, okay, it's because of where I'm working. And so he handed his resignation and went to work somewhere else. He got there and found it wasn't as good as he thought. And so he came back to where we were. And then he started grumbling again. And so he asked another friend of ours that we worked with if he could find him a job with a, another place. And so he helped him. And, you know, I was talking to him the other day and he's grumbling about that one too. <laughs> and, you know, we get into this habit, don't we, of 
of, of grumbling and complaining and uh, whining about the things that are going wrong around us. Well, Paul tells us that these stories are there for us to learn from. These are examples of, not, of what not to do. Paul says, learn from the mistakes of the Israelites. Use their example so that we don't make those same mistakes ourselves. Don't get overconfident because you belong to the Lord. These people belong to the Lord too, and they fell. I've talked about it here before, uh, about people who belong to the Lord and fell. We think about some of those televangelists who belong to the Lord and they fell. There are many pastors who have belonged to the Lord and fallen. Many strong Christians that I know over the years, they belong to the Lord and they have fallen. The famous German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffler wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, where he defined a dangerous theology that he called the cheap grace. Bonhoeffler talked of presuming on your salvation to the point of not worrying anymore about your daily sin. It is forgiveness without repentance. It's communion without confession. Does that ring a bell? We need to realize how serious God takes sin. Billy Graham always used to choose to travel with a male member of his staff so that he could stay above reproach. He would never travel in a vehicle alone with a woman. And uh, he could stay above reproach and protect himself from sexual temptation. He said it was just too great a risk to take. Well, here's the point. It's not enough to rely on our status as Christians. We need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in fleeing temptation, in battling temptation, and staying above reproach. The great reformer Martin Luther once said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. Paul says in verse 12 of our passage, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Paul says, be wise, take precautions, guard against temptations, guard against overconfidence in what Paul calls or refers to as confidence in the, in the flesh. A few weeks ago, Dave Testard was speaking over at Ingester Street Bible Church and he told a story about a friend of his who had a problem with alcohol. And um, the big problem was that you know, when you are an alcoholic and you start drinking, you can't stop until you're blotto. And I've got a brother-in-law that's like that and other people that I know. But the thing was, this, this guy was saved and he wanted to turn his life around. And so his friends, like Dave, would sit there with him and encourage him and also be there to help him guard against this temptation. And they wouldn't take him to places that he would be tempted beyond his ability. We need to guard against temptation. We need to take precautions. We need to have friends, strong Christian friends around us who know what our problem is and can help us to overcome that. Be confident in God's spirit and rely on him rather than on your own strength. Verse 12 reminds me of Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Perhaps Paul was thinking of this verse as well. The moment that we get a haughty spirit or we become proud, thinking that we can do this Christian life well in our own strength, watch out, because that's the time you're bound to fall. It's just a matter of time. It's not if you fall, it'll be when. 
And I understand that some of you take falls seriously, and I do. I certainly do, because they're not very pleasant. I've got a, um, the only part of my foot, and uh, I had a, a fall, I ended up having an operation in Auckland, and I've had two operations on my back now, because the discs in my back uh, were herniated, and they've pinched the nerve, and I can't control my right foot. I can't lift it, I can't move it. And so what happens is it drags and I trip and I fall. It's okay when you're by yourself, but when you're in public and you fall, it's, a, it's very embarrassing. It's not something that you want to do. A fall carries consequences. As it is true physically, so it is spiritually. It's true. I grew up in a little brethren church at Oingaiti, which put much stock on the initial conversion to Jesus. Every, every Sunday we had a sermon about it. Every Sunday evening we had a gospel message. And pretty much every Sunday school lesson we heard as kids encouraged us to give our lives to Jesus, to make a personal confession of faith as Jesus as, Jesus as Lord. Now I think this is scriptural, but if it's out of balance, if it's, if it's um, emphasised alone, we need to do more than just put our faith and trust in Jesus. The Bible says we are initially saved uh, by God, but then it also talks about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2, verses 12 to 16 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Familiar? So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And that's where we certainly live today, in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. You see, the working out is our daily living out of our faith in dependence upon God having God to help us until he brings us home to glory. And help us he does. Our passage closes with verse 13, the great promise. Now, if you don't know this verse by heart, I suggest and strongly recommend to you that you learn it by heart so that you can quote it in full. Learn it, repeat it, remember it, and be ready to recall it at any time when you face a time of testing. And this is what it says. And just hold on to this wonderful, wonderful promise of God. He says, There's no temptation has overtaken what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. What a wonderful promise. There's no you except that which is common to all of mankind the devil tries to make you think that you're so bad you're so evil that nobody could understand what you're going through and what you've been doing he tries to tell you that God is is holy and you can't go to a holy God uh, having done what you've done you're so bad well take take note of this every temptation that you face somebody else has too and we need to share that with other people so that we can be encouraged as to how God has dealt with them 
and help them. And he's going to help you too. Because you see, God is faithful. He's not going to let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And I've had people say to me, oh, look, I, I looked for the way out, but I couldn't, couldn't find it. And so, you know, this person in particular that I'm thinking of ran off with another woman. Left his wife and children behind. You know, I, there was no way out. But God says when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. He will. He will provide a way out. The point is, you have to look for that way out. It's going to be there. And if you can't see it, ask God to show it to you. God promises in this verse that our temptations will never go beyond what is common in human experience. You are not alone with your struggle with sin. Don't think your temptations are worse than anyone else's. They're not. We're all in this together. And God promises he will never allow us to be tempted beyond our ability to deal with it. All we have to do is look for that way out and run for it, like Joseph did when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. Just get out of there. Get out of there quick. Better still, keep away from those places where you know you have a weakness and could fall. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to presume on your grace. We don't want to go about sinning all the more because we have been saved. Help us not to grow lackadaisical in our faith. Instead, we want to please you, and we recognize that we can't do this in our own strength because we'll fall into that temptation every time. Help us to daily rely on your Holy Spirit within us, for in him lies the victory. Help us to remember how much your dis our disobedience hurts you and to want to please you more than to please ourselves. We pray this in the name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.